I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Monday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa and John Fort. Today, more tech carnage, session lows for stocks, mega cap names like Meta, Amazon, Alphabet and Microsoft all down more than 3 percent. The opportunities in the sector with the Nasdaq now nearly 20 percent off the record high. Then payments platforms withdraw from Russia. PayPal, Amex, Visa, MasterCard join the exodus. And then later to the moon and beyond, GameStop's Ryan Cohen makes another meme bet, John. Yep, but let's start with stocks. Tech sector is down 2% back to the lows of the year. In fact, the XLK ETF touching levels it hasn't seen since last summer. Our Mike Santoli is here to take a look at the macro, uh, macro headwinds for tech. Mike? Yeah, John. And of course, the broader market, too, is trading at levels that we first saw back in late June, as is the S&P tech sector. This now qualifies as a, you know, six or eight months consolidation in this market. We have this what I would call a compound correction. So we had the ongoing valuation adjustment in growth stocks that was, you know, got underway, let's say, last December, uh, alongside, you know, embracing for Fed tightening. All these things we know about now, we have this geopolitical and oil shock on top of it. Arguably, if you look at the history of these geopolitical shocks, they usually mean six or eight percent downside over several weeks. We'll see if we've already priced in a lot of all that. But take a look at one other element here, which is, you know, the the growth stocks, as reflected in the Nasdaq 100, are not acting as defensive uh, assets relative to uh, to where bonds are right now, too. So you see over the course of the year, people got very, very focused on the idea that when bond yields have gone down, uh, tech stocks managed to outperform and vice versa. And it roughly kept uh, kept, you know, more or less along those lines into last year. You see basically this inverse move in yields versus the S&P 500. And then you see, you know, yields uh, kind of making these new highs and Nasdaq going down. But what, we, what we've seen so far this year, though, is this both down at the same time. Obviously, this is not the key crux of the relationship between value and growth stocks. Uh, it's not just about yields. And it shows you that it, the reasons that it's happening matter a lot right now. And I do think one of the big questions is at some point at some valuation, does the Nasdaq again start to regain defensive properties that uh, they've so far lost, guys? Mike, we talk, we've talked a lot about valuation for a, a few weeks now, but uh, earnings are the other uh, sort of question uh, and a lot of worry about how you buy if, in fact, you were concerned that earnings revisions are going to go negative. We've already seen breadth get, get to start to narrow uh, and, and you lose that part of the P.E. No doubt about it, Carl. So right now, you've certainly gone down, let's say, to around 19 times forward earnings on the overall S&P 500. The high was, you know, 23 or late last year is around 21. And we bottomed in the 18, 18 and a half area back in late January. So if that's support down below, it's not that far away unless, of course, you do see erosion in the uh, full year S&P estimates. It's not happening yet. Analysts sometimes are lagging, not leading indicators of that. But that will be the focus right now as we're talking about winners and losers coming out of this commodity shock. Mike, thanks. Now, let's uh, focus in on enterprise software, what we sometimes call cloud. Don't look up. The sector has suffered. The Bessemer Cloud Index is down about 40 percent from its November highs. And every single component is down from its 52-week highs, of course. Joining us now 
on where to look for value, Bessemer Venture Partners, Byron Dieter. Byron, uh, good morning. So, Thank you. Great to be back, despite the circumstances. Yeah, despite the circumstances. <laughs> tough times in so many ways. But Indeed. my overarching question is, is this a, an Amazon 2001 moment? And of course, around September 2001, Amazon was at about uh, the equivalent of $6 a share. It's 2800 right now. But how do we know when we've gotten there with the, the software names that are going to survive into the future? For those who are willing to look medium to long term, we absolutely think it is. This sector has just been pounded, and yet the macro trends remain very much intact. Over the prior years, as I've been on this show, we've talked a lot about these super high-quality names at admittedly pretty high multiples and had this discussion of you know how far can they run and when do they grow into the valuation. Now you continue to have these extremely high-quality names, but they're on sale across the board. Uh, the median is down about 53% in this basket, and yet you still look at these growth rates north of 40%. You look at positive free cash flow. You look at these compounding dynamics it, with the new economy and the move to cloud. They're all intact, which makes us think if we're not at the bottom, we have to be close to it because the value opportunities here, both defensively per the prior discussion and offensively about the big opportunities, still remain intact. Yeah, have to is, is strong language, though. And so I wonder what represents the floor here uh, value wise? What's going to keep them from going low? Because you might have said, oh, well, 30 percent down. Boy, that that looked awfully bad, uh, like a buying opportunity. But now we're like 50 percent down for a lot of these. So why not 70? So I think it's a relative question right now for short-term traders of where to put dollars, and we're seeing a lot of volatility, and and that's where plus or minus uh, a handful of percentage points or weeks or months here. Uh, That's a trader's decision more than an investor's decision, and and, uh, I can't comment as much on that. When you look medium to long-term, though, these companies have compressed from the 25x multiples down to below 12x revenue multiples. And again, they're still growing at 40% growth rates. And so if you look at just out over the course of this year and say, maybe the multiples can pull back you know, another turn or two, um, and yet these businesses should grow, grow through it. And so it's quite possible that there could be more multiple volatility. And yet with these growth rates, if you look out, I think it's highly likely that the stocks will end the year higher even if they absorb some more chaos because of the macro geopolitical and and, uh, microeconomic situation we're all seeing. Byron, it's Deirdre. How do you pick through the sector? I mean, how do you know what's an Amazon and what might be a Cisco? You know, important companies in the future, but may never sort of regain those highs or their value. Yeah, so I think there's two answers to that in terms of how we're looking at investments right now. The first is on the company-specific level, and that's very much through an efficiency score filter, which is this interplay between growth rates and capital consumption. Really, uh, what we think of is a modified rule of 40. Instead of revenue and gap EBIT, we're looking a little bit ahead to the subscription revenue growth rate or the annual recurring revenue and how that relates to the free cash flow. That's the company-specific level. And then on the sector side, we're looking at some of these sectors that should be a little more resilient to the economic pullback, inflation, those elements, uh, specifically cybersecurity, DevOps, infrastructure, categories that, if anything, maybe have lagged because of the IT distraction for the COVID response. And now there's almost this infrastructure debt that organizations have, and they have to catch up to that as people come back to the office and as these businesses come back online. And we think that could be a pull through that could weather this in a more stable way. 
So, Byron, give us some of those names, then, if you can, out of your basket on the company side, which are the ones that sort of satisfy those criteria that you do think will eventually perhaps get back to those highs or could have reached the bottom? Uh, yeah, so I, I look at like a Sentinel One, I look at a GitLab, I look at uh, a DigitalOcean that's been more resistant um, across those categories. I also look at some net new category ads that have come into the index uh, with new additions. We added 20 companies over the last month, which was the largest addition in the index history. Uh, the major buckets there um, overlap with some of the segments I talked about before, but specifically I'd add uh, enterprise SaaS and vertical SaaS there as well. Vertical SaaS is extremely resilient if you have categories that can withstand that. Um, companies like Procore and Disco and Toast uh, have seen you know, a, a lot of business growth going forward, and I think with the efficiency score dynamic could be successful names here in the coming quarters. Byron, how do you think investors should uh, strategize when it comes to the names that serve small and medium business specifically. There are several of them uh, on this list that either really focus in uh, mainly on small and medium business or are SMB friendly. And there's been this shift over the past couple of years in SMB mindset, it seems, toward wanting more digital processes and understanding that that's an important part, not just of planning for the future, but having resilience uh, and, and uh, you know, capability in their business should a shock hit. Uh, as an investor, how should you um, categorize and strategize around SMB? So SMB has been one of the biggest beneficiaries of this move to cloud, as you suggest. Uh, they no longer have to have mediocre, you know, downloadable Kluge software. They can actually have best of breed solutions with internet integrations across multiple apps. And so we absolutely see that as one of the compelling growth areas ahead. Um, the things that we look for, though, is exposure, higher churn rates. You often have this dynamic with lower acquisition costs, but shorter customer lifetime values. And so we're sensitive to that motion of upsells, renewals, retention, seeing this healthy dynamic across SMB businesses where maybe they start with an application and then they cross sell payments, as was the case with Shopify, with Toast on the private side service Titan does that. Uh, we'd love to see these sticky businesses that can help the SMBs where they can run their entire business often on these applications. Um, and you get this multi-pillar strategy that goes from desktop to mobile. It goes from application to payments and fintech. And we're looking for more and more of that. And you will see more constituents of the index added in the coming quarters as more of those great private companies make their way into the public universe and add to this emerging cloud basket. Hey, finally, Byron, uh, we're seeing a lot of weakness, especially today, uh, not to get too granular, uh, of apparel uh, retailers, uh, especially those with a lot of exposure to Europe, uh, PVH and Ralph Lauren, for example. Where does it lead us to thinking in terms of e-commerce uh, and names in e-commerce that are highly exposed to apparel, for example? Yeah, there's certainly some real exposure. They've had the supply chain hit on one side, and then there could be a demand chain hit here on the other. And so, Really, we, we think of that category by category. We look at the companies that have lower acquisition costs because they have um, organic traffic through name recognition and unaided recall. And we look for protected, insulated verticals that may be a little more resilient, both geographically with distribution and supply chain benefits, but also sectors that may be a little more resilient. But it's a tough slice within tech land right now. And as you note, uh, across all sectors, not just software, not just uh, e-commerce, um, hyper growth has been um, it has been hit disproportionately. And when people get uh, fine bottom and when you get this defensive mindset going, we think that there could be a little bit of greed that kicks back in from the offensive mindset for these names specifically ahead. 
Byron, love that detail you gave us. Byron Dieter, thank you. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Meantime, more companies, including Netflix, suspending services in Russia over the weekend. The company has about one million subscribers there, which is a relatively small percentage of its 222 million global members. TikTok also taking action, suspending new content and live streaming, saying, quote, in light of Russia's new fake news law, we have no choice but to suspend live streaming and our new content to our video service. Plus, Activision Blizzard and Epic Games halt sales, joining EA and Microsoft. And then there are the payments companies limiting access to services, making it extremely hard to send money to anyone in Russia. Kate Rooney has more on some of those names, send money, and also not necessarily do transactions because Russia can use its own payment system, right? right? They have an internal option, but it is a big move and unprecedented, unprecedented for Visa and MasterCard and the payment names. So Visa, MasterCard, and Amex, as well as PayPal, had been complying with sanctions, but they took it a step further over the weekend, suspending all operations in Russia. The move cuts off individuals making payments overseas. Cards issued outside of Russia won't work at merchants or ATMs in the country. And a lot of cards in Russia are what they call co-badged, meaning they work with Visa and MasterCard, as well as Russia's local payment network, NSPK. So some of these cards will still work within Russia, but it cuts off Russians from most of e-commerce. This is really unprecedented for the card companies, analysts I'm talking to say Visa and MasterCard are really seen as historically apolitical. You almost never see this. And the move came after Ukraine's President Zelensky had the card networks leaving Russia on his list of requests to the Biden administration on that call over the weekend. Visa and MasterCard get about 4% of revenue from Russia. I'm told that revenue hit for PayPal and Amex is negligible. Amex only works with one bank in Russia, while PayPal gets less than 1% of revenue. From Russia, But it could have big implications for the global payments landscape. One analyst I talked to calls it an earthquake for the space. And in the short term, Russian banks are already saying they're going to switch to union pay. That's the card processing network based in China. Long term, though, it could boost the growing card processing ecosystem in Asia. Dean. Yeah, there's a lot of implications, Kate. Thank you. And guys, as, as Kate said, this is really unprecedented for the card companies that have pushed back on other, I guess you could call it maybe ethical points like gun sales. So to see them do this is, is a big moment. And you have to wonder where this puts pressure on. Certainly the crypto trading platforms are holding strong and saying that they're not going to cut off all Russian users. Uh, Carl, you had a really good conversation this morning with Jeff Sonenfeld, who said that, you know, companies using excuses are kind of avoiding the point of sanctions. The point is to inflict sort of economic, political pain, if, even if that means on the consumers in Russia. And you have other companies like WeWork, too, that are still operating in the, in the country. Yeah, we were talking about, uh, for example, uh, the fallout from a decision like a Visa MasterCard, John, where you may have some people who were actively opposed to the invasion, trying to get out of the country and still themselves can't access their bank accounts. Sonnenfeld's point was, though, the, the broader goal is, is much goes way beyond uh, some of the collateral damage that some consumers sadly will feel. Yeah, I think payments companies and tech in general is starting to find itself in a really uh, interesting and, and challenging position right now. We were talking months ago about whether China was becoming uninvestable, right? And there had been this move to embrace Chinese companies listing here, et cetera. Very quickly, we're seeing Russia perhaps becoming not only uninvestable, but very difficult to do business in. And then Russia and China drawing closer together. So, you know, and potentially uh, evading the impact of sanctions. So does this scenario that we've been talking about, that so many 
tech CEOs, including Satya Nadella, have been saying we don't want to end up with a Chinese Internet and a U.S. Internet, these two different digital mm -hmm. economies. Is that actually accelerating? Uh, I think it's possible that it is and that U.S. Internet companies and payments companies, uh, Carl, end up um, being a very important factor as far as spheres of influence, whether we're talking about uh, EMEA, whether we're talking about Latin America, uh, China's been trying to make investments. And in a sense, these tech platforms that we're just talking to Byron Dieter about might be part of the U.S. sphere of influence. Yeah, yeah. The payment element uh, came a little bit later than some expected. But as, to your point, it's maybe one of the most important. After the break, uh, Uber arrives early, a private ad advantage, and Palantir gets an upgrade. Tech Check's just getting started. Time now for a gut check on Uber, raising its guidance for the year. The company is saying its mobility business, so that's ride-sharing, is rebounding from the Omicron surge faster than expected. In February, trips returned to 90 percent of 2019 levels, so almost completely recovered from those pre-pandemic levels. Gross bookings exiting February were up over 50 percent month-on-month shares. They are about flat this morning, slightly positive, but Guys, with gas hitting $5 a gallon in some places, it'll be interesting to see if that keeps drivers home and eventually could keep margins for Uber. And I guess that's <laughs> from one crisis on to the next one. Um, many investors thought that Uber and Lyft were sort of done with their driver subsidies. But now with gas prices where they are, you have to wonder if they're going to have to, you know, spend more money. John? Yeah. Uh, another scenario I see here, Carl, even if they do have to spend more money, is that higher gas prices end up being good for Uber and Lyft because riders are going to be more willing to put up with uh, higher fares because they don't want to buy their own car, which is practically impossible in a lot of places, or directly pay for their own gas. So in that sense, if the economy holds up, despite you know, these macro issues and other types of inflation, maybe people who would otherwise buy their own car and pump their own gas into it say, who, hey, I'll, I'll just take an Uber and pay for this a bit at a, uh, at a time rather than taking the whole hit up front. Yeah, I was going to say, John, uh, exactly right. I mean, from a behavioral standpoint, we're really sort of in waters that we've not charted for a long time. Few of us remember what this kind of uh, energy environment would be like. But I did notice this morning, D, uh, wholesale used car prices mm -hmm. down in February, obviously up 38 percent year yeah. on year. But is that a top tick? And are people more willing to put up with, say, shared rides than commuting on their own if this keeps up? It goes to their pricing power, which has been a question throughout the pandemic. So we'll see that uh, question enter a new phase. And speaking of Uber, guys, a new report out of Baird is pointing to what could be a major competitor in the ad ecosystem. And that would be the $40 billion private company, Instacart, which we talk a lot about on this program. But the question is, is there advantage over the likes of Uber and DoorDash enough to challenge the heavyweights like Shopify and Google? Joining us now, Baird Senior Research Analyst Colin Sebastian. Colin, let's take the gig economy right. side of this equation first. These companies are still very unprofitable. So a high margin business like advertising would be incredibly valuable. But it seems to me like Instacart was in this space a lot earlier than a DoorDash and a, and a Uber. Yeah, that's right. I mean, for Instacart specifically, the grocery market, as we know, is enormous, a trillion dollar market in the U.S. 
you know, one of the retail categories that's still left for disruption. And Instacart, we estimate, controls about 25% of that online slice of overall grocery. So they're an early mover. They have advantages in terms of a large consumer base. And they're transitioning from a transactional platform to more of an inspirational platform, whereas, which is where advertising comes into play. Right. That's what they want to be. Then, Colin, I wonder, why hasn't Instacart gone public yet? I mean, some have thought that they maybe missed their chance coming out of the pandemic to show those strong numbers. Any sense of how big that advertising business really is and if it's enough to offset for a potential slowdown in grocery delivery post-pandemic? Yeah, I I guess you'd have to ask them about plans to go public. But in terms of advertising, uh, I mean, remember, this this is a data play as well. They have incredible amounts of first-party transactional data about customers that they feed back into their platform. And and that presents an opportunity to compete with Google and Amazon in search advertising as well as discovery. And and that that not not only improves the value proposition for consumers, but also for merchants that that get that data as well and and certainly has the opportunity to pad uh, Instacart's margins. Remember, they are a technology company. They're relying on the network of retailers and shoppers and drivers to do a lot of the heavy lifting. So the profit margin profile for a company like this could be quite high. Uh, Well, Colin, that's what I want to ask you about, though, And I want your thoughts on a dynamic that I'm seeing play out in this space. As I talk to DoorDash, as I talk to Grab, they're increasingly trying to get customers into multiple categories of services because that improves retention, lowers churn, and improves margins if they can do that. So does Instacart need somehow to either create or get into more of a basket, especially as the price of groceries goes higher and some consumers might feel more sensitive about paying that and a fee on top of it uh, to, to get the groceries to their door? Yeah, I mean, it's about selection. It's about convenience and price. And, and for Instacart specifically, they have a Prime-like membership program that's proving quite popular, Instacart Express. They're expanding into ultra-fast 30-minute delivery, and they're offering products beyond grocery. They have partnerships with Best Buy and Staples, for example, offering more convenience store items as well. Uh, gifts are, are another category. And, and so they, they have a very good opportunity to expand, as you said, the basket size, the average order value, and conversion rate. And in addition, you know, all the data and advertising that they're launching this year. Yeah, that's interesting, Colin. You, you talk about 30-minute. I, I was going to ask you whether or not cost pressures, uh, worries about household balance sheets would sort of argue that we've sort of peaked out in sort of hyper-convenience, but maybe that's still how they're going to acquire new customers or, or keep the ones they already have. Yeah, I think it's a great point. I think grocery is really the key here, fresh food. And, and people want or need that within a very short time span versus buying candles or or TVs from Amazon and getting that delivered same day, for example. So there's a a really strong use case here for fast delivery. Consumers will pay a premium for fast delivery in these categories. And then, as you mentioned before, leveraging that to to uh, to spread across other product categories. So grocery is the place for for that ultra fast delivery proposition. 
Colin, Amazon's advertising segment was just revealed to be a $30 billion plus annual revenue business. Can it use that heft in e-commerce to um, give Instacart more competition on the grocery side? We know that Amazon um, is not backing out of the grocery space. And do you anticipate them to sort of be that main competitor? How does how does that change the advertising dynamic? Yeah, Amazon, Walmart, for sure. Kroger, you know, is doing a, a relatively good job as well. They're a partner of Instacart, in fact. Uh, but Amazon is saddled by its own grocery operations, its inventory, its warehouses. And so what, what sets Instacart apart is they're creating and building up a network to provide that the same uh, services as, as Amazon provides for only its customer base across the rest of grocery. And, and that's where Instacart has carved out this so far leadership market share, competing very well against Amazon. Amazon has an opportunity with Prime, competing on price and with delivery as well. But the bar has been already raised in front of Amazon. And, and that's a key difference in this category versus others and why Amazon has struggled. Colin, thanks so much for being with us. Great insights. My pleasure. Thank you. Still to come, an identity crisis for Zoom, Peloton, and other work-from-home high flyers. We'll consider that next. Tech Check, back in a moment. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Ford and Deirdre Bosa. We continue to watch the markets as stocks fall once again. Got a uh, quite a downdraft once the opening bell rang amid these calls for a complete ban on Russian crude purchases, helping drive up oil prices today, while lawmakers here in the U.S. push back against implementing a no-fly zone. We'll get more on that in just a moment. First, though, a news update with Rahel Solomon. Hi, Rahel. Hi, Carl. Good morning. And more on that now, too. Oil making big moves up and down, as you mentioned, Carl as the U.S. pushes for a wide ban on buying Russian energy exports. So overnight crude surged to a 13-year high, over $130 a barrel. But all of the gains were erased after indications that Germany is resisting a move to cut off its purchases from Russia. Arkela Tausche reports that the White House is now considering a standalone oil ban without the European Union. Right now, West Texas crude futures are up around 3 percent, near $119 a barrel. Shares of Bed Bath & Beyond are up around 40 percent this morning. GameStop chairman Ryan Cohen says that he has a 10 percent stake in the retailer and wants changes. Cohen telling the company that it should narrow its focus and consider separating its buy-by baby unit or even sell the entire company. And Kohl's is making changes under pressure from activists in what the retailer's CEO is calling a complete reinvention of its business model and brand. It will open smaller stores to attract new customers and also concentrate on its Sephora business. Wall Street, however, not very confident. Kohl's stock is down almost 8% right now. Carl, I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel, thank you. Uh, the Russia-Ukraine conflict continues to weigh on the market, obviously. The ruble, in fact, just broke through 150, now officially worth half of what it was in early February before hostilities began. Our next guest says it's still too early to read the tea leaves, but the impact on tech and supply chain, cybersecurity are already being felt. Former Cisco CEO John Chambers joins us now, an investor at uh, JC2 Ventures. John, welcome back. Good to see you again. Carl, uh, John, Dietrich, it's a pleasure to be with you all again today. We've been talking to you for a couple of years now about broad uh, geopolitical risk. A lot of our conversations have been centered around China and how tech policy would be uh, pushed around uh, by that relationship. But obviously, this is a new era. I-, I wonder some of your initial thoughts about how history has changed here. 
Well, I think history's changed forever. I think you see a united Europe in terms of the challenges. I think you see tech companies not just focusing on what is important for their bottom line, but also what's right for society. You see the American public united for the first time in quite a while, where 75% of Americans feel very strong that companies should take very strong action versus Russia. And I think it's important to do what we've talked about so many times before, Carl and John, that uh, in a crisis management, you determine how much of it was inflicted externally, how much internally. You say, here are the three to five things I'm going to do to deal with it. You then update your shareholders, your employees, your customers on where you're going to go. You paint the picture of how you come out of it. We will come out of this fine. Tech will be fine within this. Tech is being driven by the digital revolution, and it will actually speed up certain segments of technology, such as cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, if you will, uh, and the cloud moving to the edge, which are such important technologies for every company in the future. Do, do you think, I mean, what about the, uh, the effect on innovation and I guess white space, John, uh, places where tech uh, thought they were going to grow uh, 20 or 30 years ago that now look off limits? Well, I actually think it's a great question. Uh, I actually think it's going to expand the number of white spaces and technology areas. Uh, before, when we talk about this five years ago, we'd talk about Silicon Valley, Austin being arrested, maybe Boston 128, a couple of other centers around the world. Today, you have unicorns exploding in areas like India, Germany, France, etc. on it. France was just named the most innovative country in Europe with new startups. And you see workforces with Zoom technology, Cisco telepresence, et cetera, suddenly able to locate anywhere. So I actually think that accelerates it. I think that's good for the global economy. It allows people to create jobs quicker and share in this resource for the future. So I actually think tech enables all that. Uh, John, good morning. Are we, though, seeing uh, an accelerated kind of uh, bifurcation here uh, and perhaps uh, uh, the beginnings of a digital Cold War where you've got Russia and China on one side, U.S. and Europe on the other, and now it's wrestling between the two for for influence. You had Belt and Road in China. You have this dependence on Russian energy and raw materials, but at the same time, you've got these technology services and, and equipment and cloud providers coming out of the U.S., promising higher productivity. Uh, is it a question of which way Latin America, EMEA, uh, get pulled in this, in this situation? About six questions. Let me see if I can hit them in the sequence. I remember them. <laughs> uh, in terms of Europe, I think you're going to see Europe come united. In terms of energy policies, you are going to see major movement to uh, alternate energy options, and you have to have more energy uh, independence, whether you're in the U.S. or in Europe. In terms of the key trends overall, this is a united world. Uh, I think Russia is out there by themselves. Uh, China uh, has to walk that line carefully, uh, but they're smart. Uh, and uh, they understand the brand implications for China and how this evolves. I am cautiously optimistic that mediation can be encouraged by both the Chinese and the Israelis. And we need to unwind this situation in the Ukraine going forward. And I think I would, I would be remiss if I didn't take this moment just to say the tremendous courage that the Ukrainian people have shown all of us. And I like the fact that finally businesses, all of us come together and say this is unacceptable. Culture and society takes equal precedence or more over economic gain in the short term. And we'll come through this uh, just too early, as I said in my opening comments, to say how quickly this will occur. 
but I think we'll come out of it in good shape. I think it will be United Technology World. There'll be a couple of outliers. And just the point that you raised on security, uh, the data I've seen, there's about a trillion dollars lost to cybersecurity hacks each year, of which two thirds is attributed to Russia. That's already been a cold war going on for a long time. We need to step up to that. Yeah. And if you're thinking about investments uh, in, during this time period, I would think cybersecurity companies who either can prevent, can tell you the stage of it, re- help you to recover, are going to be key. That's clearly where I'm putting my mm-hmm. investment portfolio. Uh, and then the ability to move into new areas such as AI, which will explode this year. And then alternate energy. Think of a bloom energy. Uh, energy at the edge of the network with, uh, if you will, natural gas, clean energy, moving to hydrogen. I think these are plays in the market that can help the whole global economy come through it. John, it's Deirdre. I want to dig in a little more into the China tech aspect of this. Uh, You've spent a significant amount of time there, as have I. So you know well that China is looking out for its best interests. And I wonder, what do you think that Beijing is thinking of the opportunity right now in terms of payments to semiconductors? Is it looking for an in or do you think that global stability is more key? Well, I think global stability is equally as important to the Chinese as it is to the Americans and to Europe. Uh, A economic fragile situation with nuclear powers is not good for anyone. The Chinese almost always play the long game. Uh, Deirdre, I've been there for a couple of decades longer than you have, started when I was a teenager. But as you've watched them over the years with their five-year plans, et cetera, normally very predictable. It's in their best interest. This resolution uh, gets done and the issues in Ukraine get unwound. And it doesn't want to be too tightly tied to a country with 140 million people with the rest of the world pretty well united in the disappointment of what's occurring. So I think they'll do a smart thing and navigate through this uh, in terms of the balance. And I, I think you will see the world continue to stay pretty strong, united in terms of what Russia did here was unacceptable and cannot be uh, tolerated. John, we, we do appreciate that optimism, even though there's a lot of unanswered questions right now. We'll be talking a lot more frequently, I hope. We'll see you soon. All right. Thank you all. Come on anytime you want. It's great to be with you again today. John Chambers. Still to come on the show, Kathy Wood calls ARK a VC firm for retail investors. Those comments in just a moment. Don't go away. normal for stocks. After two years of a pandemic, some businesses are stronger than ever. Some that were in a weak position only got weaker, and then some had a huge boom and then a huge bust. Dom Chu has a series of stories today, but is taking a closer look at those boom and bust stocks for us. Dom? All right. So, John, while the shift to staying at home presented opportunity for a select group of companies, some of those pandemic winners have still struggled to find their post-pandemic life, their footing, so to speak. That includes names like Stitch Fix, which allows buyers to try on and buy clothing without ever entering a store. Now, that stock hit a pandemic high of around 113 bucks a share back in January of 2021, but has fallen roughly 90 percent since then, with shares now trading roughly about $11 or so. Freelance marketplace Fiverr still up significantly from the start of the pandemic, but the exuberance has waned a bit with that stock off 80 percent since its highs back in February of 2021. And then there's Peloton, 
which quickly became a household name as gyms were closed around the country and people looked to continue their fitness routines from their homes. In that the declaration of the pandemic to its peak, the Peloton trade was up nearly 650 percent, you can see. But that stretched to the present day. And the stock is now basically flat to start off the COVID post side of things after a number of issues ranging from supply chains and declining demand for to PR woes related to product recalls and a couple of unfortunate cameos of the product on TV. Another, by the way, fairly early pandemic darling was Zoom video. That stock was up about a hot 440 percent from the start of the pandemic to its kind of October 2020 peak. But as the company has started reporting slowing revenue growth, a decrease in enterprise customers and disappointing revenue outlooks, that stock has come back to earth now near the flat line since March 11th of 2020. So, guys, as we kind of get adjusted to this, so to speak, new normal post pandemic, keep an eye on some of those big early pandemic winners. And by the way, many of these stocks are actually up from where they were pre-pandemic still. But that whole idea of the year and a half that we saw with those stock reverberations carrying through for months, that was something that caught a lot of investors' eyes, guys. Yeah, Dom, uh, curious your thoughts on what Byron Dieter was telling us earlier in the hour, focusing in specifically on software, enterprise software, cloud-connected stocks, arguing that, well, they're still growing at 40 percent, but now their multiples are way down. And so even if uh, they, they lose even more uh, off their stock price and the volatility going forward, they might still represent value. Are, are you hearing that kind of a line from other people as well? So, so it, it's interesting you bring that point up, because if you look at some of the longer term charts, say for two to three years for companies like Peloton or Zoom or, or to your point, some of these cloud computing type software plays, if you kind of just blacked out the 18, 20 months between the pandemic declaration and, and kind of where we are now, the stocks on that straight line growth trajectory have actually just been resized and, and repriced. They're bigger than they were pre-pandemic, and they're still growing. They just are not growing at the same clip that, that justified a 3, 4, 5, 600 percent rise in some of these stocks out there, which is why in many cases this is about trying to figure out the identity of these companies and what investors actually expect from them in the coming months and years. It's, there's no doubt that, that enterprise software and workplace productivity will be forever changed by Zoom, and Zoom will possibly continue to grow very markedly so over the coming months and years, but it just won't be hyperbolic, right, like, like we saw during March to, say, you know, tw- March of 2020 all the way to, say, the fall of 2021. Yeah, uh, stay at home 2.0. Everybody wants to know what that's going to look like uh, in aggregate and for these companies, Dom. Great, great report. That's our Dom Chu. Uh, Coming up, we're going to debate what peak performance may mean ahead of Apple's product event tomorrow. Dow now down 518 and a lot more tech check is still ahead. I think if you were to look at the next five years, you, and, and if you were to give us that five-year investment time horizon, we are the closest you'll find to a venture capital fund in the public equity markets. If you were to give us that five years, um, given our expectations for growth in these new technologies, uh, I think we're going to see some spectacular returns. I wonder if Kathy's remembering that 75% of VC investments fail. 
That was ARK Invest Kathy Wood. Her flagship ETF was surging to close out February, but those gains have now been erased over the last week. It is back to a 52-week low, down 39% year-to-date. Speaking of ARK, a gut check on one name. It has been offloading. That's Palantir. Uh, Morgan Stanley sees value here, upgrading from underweight to equal weight this morning, bullish on the software firm's government business, but dropping the price target from 24 to 16 bucks. Morgan Stanley also saying it's waiting to see yields on the company's investment in the commercial side of the business. Shares higher this morning by about five and a half percent. As we had to break a quick programming note, new primetime series, No Retreat Business Boot Camp with the founder of Spartan Races premieres tomorrow, 10 p.m. Eastern, right here on CNBC. You don't want to miss that. Tech Check is back in just a moment. There's a Disney debate happening on the street right now, starting with the Bears. Uh, Michael Nathanson cuts his price target by 15 bucks, cites some fears that the DTC operating margins may fall short of peers like Netflix. And despite announcing a new ad-supported tier for Disney Plus in an effort to shore up users and margins, Nathanson says it could be a sign of profitability issues. On the flip side, B of A maintains a buy, uh, touts the return to theme parks and increased content output in the second uh, half of this year. By the way, Christine McCarthy, the CFO, will speak at Morgan Stanley's TMT conference later on today. Uh, John, uh, Jessica Reef Ehrlich at B of A talks about the park recovery, uh, Disney Plus, even some sports betting. And she does uh, keep her 191 objective. Yeah, yeah. But deep, my biggest worry about Disney is that Book of Boba and Eternals just weren't very good. <laughs> and that last Star Wars movie wasn't very good either. Like, Disney in the past has just been putting out hit after hit. And Pixar stuff is still good, but when it's coming out outside the theater, it just doesn't seem to be getting that pop. My concern yeah. is for the hit-making machine uh, that creates the catalog more than anything. I wonder if they're talking about that. John, clearly your kids are a little bit older than mine because uh, that turning red preview has been on my screen, and it's just a preview. Think about a hundred times in the last few days, and it really speaks to Carl Disney's you know brilliant string of content acquisitions, right from Star Wars to Marvel to Pixar. Even if you don't think the latest Star Wars stuff is very good, did that perhaps, John? Buy Disney some more time to figure out the economics of streaming. I don't know. I'm a little upset about what they did to Boba Fett, but that's a whole, <laughs> that's got nothing to do with tech stocks. Uh, meanwhile, speaking of stocks, the major indices, as we've mentioned, in the red, going deeper into the red, the Dow down about 543 points, the S&P off one and two thirds percent, NASDAQ about the same. We're back after this. One more, th one more thing. Billionaire Chewy co-founder Ryan Cohen made a splash in GameStop. Now he has taken a significant investment in Bed Bath & Beyond, and he's pushing for change. Shares had nearly doubled at the open. Now they're up just 30 percent. Our Leslie Picker has more on the new position and the man behind it, the activist investor for meme stock generation. Leslie. Yeah, just 30% at this point, Deirdre. Cohen wants the company to streamline its turnaround plan. He's also looking to further align management compensation with shareholders and consider strategic alternatives like separating Bye Bye Baby or selling the whole company. Cohen owns 9.8% beneficial ownership, his own money since RC Ventures doesn't manage outside capital. I spoke with a person familiar with Cohen's thinking earlier today. He's not going to wait years for Bed Bath & Beyond to change. 
changes he hinted in a letter to the board he's considering, if need be, nominating directors, other than himself, of course, because he's chairman of GameStop. Bed Bath & Beyond responded in a statement this morning saying that it hasn't had prior contact with RC Ventures, but it plans to, quote, carefully review their letter and hope to engage constructively around the ideas they have put forth. Shares of Bed Bath & Beyond surging today, although, as you mentioned, pairing back some of those gains thanks to a confluence of factors. Cohen has, of course, a cult-like following among retail investors who supported him through his coup at GameStop and beyond. The stock is the most actively traded one on the Fidelity platform today. Institutional investors riding the momentum on the long side, some getting squeezed on the short side, and that could be why we saw such a significant pop at the open and things have pared back a little bit at this point in time, guys. All right. Leslie, appreciate that. Uh, Obviously, a very busy morning. We thought that we were going to get some uplift, uh, judging from the pre-market, but that clearly didn't happen. Right from the outset, uh, market had its uh, hopes pinned to some of these uh, talks regarding the Russians and the Ukrainians. Hasn't resulted in any uh, any drop being bought here. Dow's down almost 600, almost a 2 percent drop on the S&P. And south of 42.5 there is going to take you back to about February 24th on an intraday basis. Uh, Busy day. Let's get to the judge in the half. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m.